Hey, hey. How are we all? Excellent. I, uh, the holiday I've most recently been on uh, was a beautiful overseas holiday just a few weeks ago. Went to, yeah, no, no, that didn't happen. Uh, for our honeymoon, plan, what, G, F, somewhere, somewhere down the alphabet, um, was we went on a road trip down the south coast. It was fantastic. I do love a good road trip, so I wasn't um, incredibly sad in the end that we uh, went on a road trip for the honeymoon. We had a pretty awesome time. It was very, very relaxed. But I love just that concept of traveling and taking the time to go somewhere and then really celebrating what's happening in that particular place. Uh, And the sermon tonight, the story that we encounter in John chapter 8, is in some ways, for a lot of people in the story, a bit of a road trip story. Because the Jewish religion, still today, but also at the time of Jesus, is really structured around a series of festivals. Uh, And at the time that the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, in the time of Jesus, there were three huge festivals that would happen throughout the year that were pilgrimage festivals. So heaps of Jewish people had gone on a pilgrimage, done a bit of a road trip, not in an electric vehicle or a car, they would have been walking, um, and uh, come to Jerusalem for this huge celebration, this incredible festival. And the greatest of, the all, of all the festivals was um, what we sometimes call in English, we might call it the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Sukkot, which is just uh, a Jewish word that means like a hut, like a temporary dwelling. And the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated um, or remembered the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness without a permanent home, hoping that one day they would make it into the promised land. But the Feast of Tabernacles remembers that time of wandering, a period of insecurity when they didn't have permanent homes. Uh, And part of what would happen was people would actually build temporary structures, And they had to be pretty flimsy. Um, They actually had to uh, not be, you know, very sturdy, but be fairly open to the elements. Because the whole point was for the people of Israel, uh, the Jewish people at the time, to immerse themselves in the story of their ancestors and remember what God had done for them when God had brought them through the wilderness. And as part of that, they were remembering particularly the way that God provided water in the midst of the desert. There were times when the people thought that they were going to go completely thirsty because they didn't have access to water, and God miraculously provided water in the desert. Uh, Another thing that God did in that time was we're told in the book of Exodus that God led the people of Israel through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And so there was stuff that happened in the festival to remember the incredible things that God did um, back in that time. So... uh, Part of what they did at the Feast of the Tabernacles was that they would have this huge water drawing ceremony, this huge um, water ceremony every day and most hugely on the last day of the feast when they would draw water and carry it up to the temple in Jerusalem and then pour it out over the altar. Now normally when the Jewish people offered sacrifices they would pour out wine on the altar. But during this feast, they would pour out huge amounts of water onto the altar and would run down from the altar and run down through the sides of the temple. And it was kind of, um, in a lot of people's minds, it harks to this like image in the book of Ezekiel where it talks about God kind of refreshing all the nations of the earth and flowing out from the navel or the belly button of the world and flowing out and giving water to the whole world. And for the Jewish people at the time, the temple, and particularly the altar, was symbolically the navel of the world. It's kind of weird, right? 
this huge amount of symbolism and imagery that's happening in this place. Um, the other thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is it was known um, as the time of joy, the Feast of Great Joy. It was a, like the biggest feast of all. And so um, what they would do is they would draw this water and then bring it up to the temple and there would be music and there would be dancing and there would be huge fanfare. And then they would pour this water out onto the altar, symbolizing God's provision of water in the desert, symbolizing God as a source of life for the whole earth. And we're told at the end of John 7 or in John chapter 7 that on the last and greatest day of the feast, in the midst of this huge celebration of God's provision and the water ceremony, on the last day of this feast, Jesus stands up in the middle of the temple and he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, you might have heard before that Jesus said that, and I know Joel talked about this a little bit last week for those that were here, but that's the context where Jesus says that. In the midst of this ceremony, celebrating God as the source of light, as the one, the only one who can truly quench our thirst, who satisfies our need for life, in the midst of that, Jesus stands up and says, come to me. Don't go to the priests. Don't just offer another sacrifice. Don't go to someone else. Don't go to whatever. Come to me. If you are thirsty and looking for life, come to me, says Jesus. That's a huge claim. Another thing that was um, a huge part of the Feast of Tabernacles. How do I get back to the PowerPoint? Are they in there? Yep, cool. Uh, another thing that was a huge part of that is they also celebrated light. I mentioned before that they were remembering back to when God led the people through the desert through a pillar of fire by night. And so what they actually did was they had these massive, like I am talking enormous menorahs that would go into the courtyard of the temple during this feast and they would light them up at night. And so at night, the temple would look a little bit like this. Next one. And they said that you could see it from all around, like miles and miles and miles around Jerusalem. You could see the temple lit up at night by these massive menorahs symbolizing God's leading the people through the desert. And we're told in John chapter 8 verse 12... That in that context, we've just had the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that context, Jesus stands up and again he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you getting it? This is the biggest celebration in Judaism. I think we're kind of used to the Passover being huge because that matters to us because it's associated with Jesus' death and resurrection, because that's where we celebrate Easter, right? So for us, it's like Passover is the thing. But this, this celebration, this was the time of great joy, with this huge statement about God as the source of life and God as the source of light. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, if you are looking for life, come to me. If you are looking for light, come to me. And he takes all of the symbolism of that festival and all of the symbolism of the temple and he makes it about himself. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they know exactly what's going on. They do not miss the symbolism and they freak out a little bit. 
because they understand that Jesus is actually claiming to be God. That's actually what's going on here. Some people think that the Gospels are a little bit subtle about, oh, well, Jesus never claimed to be God and he never... No, read them again. (laughs) He's absolutely audacious. Jesus, right here in this passage, says, I am Yahweh who provided water in the desert. I am Yahweh who provided light in the desert. You're looking for God? Stop looking. I'm right here. That's what Jesus says. And so in John 7, 37, we've got this statement. If anyone who's thirsty, come to me. And in John 8, 12, we've got this next statement. I am the light of the world. But in between these two statements, there's a story put in at the end of John chapter 7 and before we get the light of the world statement in John 12. It's a statement that wasn't there in the earliest versions of John's gospel, uh, but it has been inserted later. And there was a definite decision. We've got versions of this story from very, very early in the life of Jesus. I personally do believe that it's an authentic Jesus story. But it was very, very deliberately inserted into the gospel in this place. Does that make sense? It's a story about Jesus that was deliberately put in between these two sayings. And this is what it says. Can we get a mic for Sammy? You can stand if you want. Up to you. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he again appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we've got the practices of the feast forming the background of these massive statements by Jesus. Throughout the whole Gospel of John, Jesus has been demonstrating that he uh, is taking on the role of the temple within himself. So the temple is the place to meet with God. The temple is a place to have communion with God, um, to know the presence of God. Throughout the book of John, Jesus has been taking the role of the temple onto himself and saying, I'm the one that's greater than the temple. Until we get to this point in the middle of John where Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'm the water of life. I am the light of the world. And between these huge statements, you've got the story of this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. You know, it's really interesting that the Pharisees uh, 
coming straight off the back of this incredible celebration of diversity, because that was another aspect of the festival. It's actually a, a harvest festival as well, the Festival of Tabernacles, um, where they would celebrate the diversity of all of God's gifts. And the Pharisees have come straight off the back of this celebration of diversity and God's provision of grace, God's provision of life and light. And in this story, the Pharisees turn up as an angry mob dragging this woman and dumping her at Jesus' feet. I've been thinking a lot about shame lately. I've been thinking a lot about shame lately. Um, some of you that know a little bit about what's been going on for us, we've had quite the 12 months. Um, and that kind of has culminated in the last little while in me having a bit of a mental health crash, to be quite honest with you. Uh, one of my friends, one of you, um, described it to me as a, what was it, vulnerability hangover. Where it's just like, oh my gosh. Where you're experiencing all that, that self-doubt and that shame and that self-loathing. And I imagine this woman dragged out in the midst of a sexual encounter. Where's the bloke? I actually had to think about that. And I'm like, oh, is it a bloke? How do we know that she was with a bloke at the time? But then I thought about it and I'm like, I guarantee you if she was with a woman, both of them would have been dragged out. Same if it was two men. One of them would not have got off scot-free. But this chick, caught in the middle of the act of adultery, is thrown at the feet of Jesus. I can't imagine the depth of shame that she would have been feeling. The total sense of exposure. And this is what the Pharisees have done. On the back of that festival, they do this. Like we're meant to experience that as something really jarring, something really dissonant. Like, wait, what? What's going on here? And so this woman at the feet of Jesus, and yes, it's unfair that whoever else was the other party is not there because yes, it takes two to tango. And it's very clear in the law that the penalty applies to both parties. But none of that changes the fact that the woman in this story is very clearly guilty of what she's been accused of. She's guilty. There's no doubt about that that's been given to us. And the reality is, whatever the mitigating circumstances, adultery is incredibly painful. It causes incredible relational strife. If you are in a relationship that you expect to be, believe to be monogamous and exclusive, and you find that your partner is cheating on you with someone else, that's, that rips your heart out. It causes incredible pain and strife. And some of you might have been through this. Some of you might have been through it with your parents. It rips pa families apart. And when we read in the Bible about adultery, it's pretty clear that God doesn't approve. I'm going to be talking about holiness in a few weeks' time. Some of you are going, whoa, Karen's being really black and white tonight. I am. Because this, this act, it causes incredible pain and devastation. And there's no sense in scripture that God approves of that, that God approves in any way of us using our sexuality in a way that rips the heart out of someone else. There's just, there is no scriptural justification for that at all, ever. And the reality is that, um, in fact, adultery 
is such a breach of God's intention for us because I believe that we were created from and for relationship to experience safety and refuge in relationship with God and with each other. And adultery is such a breach of God's intention for humanity that in fact in the Bible, in scripture, uh, it's the metaphor that is most often used for idolatry. When you abandon the worship of the one true God for a whole bunch of other gods, fake gods that are basically Lego. That's, that was a really bold statement. But in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, adultery is the most common metaphor for idolatry. And it's that, that sin of idolatry, of unfaithfulness to Yahweh, that was the cause of Israel and Judah being kicked out of the promised land that they'd hankered for for so long and being taken into, into exile. It was their unfaithfulness to God that caused that. Um, in a few weeks' time, Bronte's going to unpack a little bit of what that unfaithfulness meant when she talks about, when she talks about justice. Uh, because, un- because faithfulness to God looks a lot like caring about other people, caring about people the way that God does. And um, in the prophets, we find Israel had stopped doing that. And people were more ca- ca- cared more about themselves than about other people. And that was understood to be faithlessness to God. It was understood to be spiritual idolatry that had the people of Israel and Judah kicked out of the promised land. It's like a second being cast out of Eden for the second time. And in that time of exile, they were unable to worship God in the temple and to encounter God in familiar ways. And Jesus on either side of this story, is clearly equating himself with God. And now we've got the Pharisees coming and throwing this woman at his feet, this woman who is clearly guilty, who has clearly violated the law of Yahweh, the law of God that had been given in the middle of the time of the wilderness wandering, yeah? The law that had been given in the midst of that, she's violated that. And she's brought condemnation on herself through her actions. So the question is, what is a holy God going to do? If Jesus is God, here's an opportunity to show us what holiness looks like. Here's an opportunity to show us what God stands for. What is a holy God to do in the midst of this situation? Now the Pharisees, they have an answer to that question. What is God going to do? God has to uphold his law. And the law shows God's character. That's the purpose of the law, to show us who God is. Uh, And that's why we celebrate and delight in the law. That's why we've just had this huge festival. But the New Testament says to us that Jesus shows God's character more perfectly than the law. Because the problem with the law, the way that we've kind of received it and understood it, is we've kind of understood the law as a series of rules, right? Right? A whole bunch of stuff to avoid. Some things that you have to do and some things that you must never do. And we've ended up with an understanding of God as like this massive policeman in the, in the sky who's policing our actions all the time, looking for when you do something wrong, looking to give you a tick when you do something right. But Jesus says that he shows the character of God more perfectly than a set of rules, more perfectly than a set of legal requirements or ritual requirements. 
And so what is Jesus going to do? Because Jesus is not just a, a dim reflection of God. Like, according to this book, Jesus is not just some kind of incarnation of God, not a representative God. Like, Jesus claims very clearly, and the New Testament states, Jesus is God. That's the claim of this book. So Jesus is not just a mitigated image. Jesus is God himself tabernacling, dwelling in the, middle, in the midst of us, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of God. That's what it says in Colossians. So if this Jesus person, if this is who God is, the full revelation of God's character, what is going to happen when Jesus comes face to face with someone who is condemned under the law, someone who has broken the law of God? What is going to happen? How is it? That Jesus, if he demonstrates what God is like, how is Jesus going to show us the character of God in this situation? Well, here's a little spoiler alert. In law, with a big L, law versus a woman, Jesus chooses a woman. Whenever it's law versus a person, Jesus will always side with the person. Why? How can a holy God choose a person over the law when God gave the law and we're meant to keep it? Well, it's simple. And we've been told this a whole bunch of ways in John and in the other Gospels as well. It's because the law wasn't given to us for us to suffer under it. The law was given to us for our benefit. Some of you have heard me describe the law in the past as like a dummy's guide to holiness. The law was meant to give us hints about the way that we're meant to treat other people. The law is not meant to be something that kills us. The law was meant to teach us how to live. It was meant to teach us how to value other people. Uh, And in fact, Jesus has been saying this all along through the book of John. Um, He even explained it at length in this long conversation to a guy called Nicodemus, um, where it kind of peaks in verses 16 to 18. And Jesus has said uh, a little bit earlier in this book, For God so loved the world that God gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How many people memorize that in Sunday school? Yep. How many people memorize the rest of it? Because it doesn't stop there. We just have this habit of pulling out random verses and memorizing them and not giving a damn about the context. But it keeps going. And this is what it says in the next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So in John chapter 3, we're told that if we believe that Jesus is the true demonstration of who God is, that Jesus is God and has come to save us, we will know salvation. But if we reject Jesus, we're kind of left to suffer under the law and make our own way and sit in our shame and our guilt. Well, that concept that Jesus has come to save it, it's, a, it's nice, it's a beautiful concept. But for the woman in this story, it's not just a theory. 
Jesus, he's there in the temple courts and he's explaining what God is like. And the Pharisees come in and they dump this woman in front of the whole group and they announce her shame and they remind everyone of the penalty. Hey, Jesus, just wondering what you're going to do. By the way, what you're supposed to do is kill her. But what will you do? You know, over to you, Jesus. What are you going to do? So what does Jesus do in this situation? It's really kind of weird and random if you've ever read it. We're told that Jesus gets down and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger. I don't know, maybe he didn't have any Play-Doh. I'm like, what is going on, Jesus? Why have you got down in the dirt and started writing with your, picture, uh, with your finger? And what, what, did you, what did you write exactly? I don't know. I know that when he's asked to give a judgment according to the law, the one who says that he is God starts writing in the dirt. And whatever it is that he writes, the Pharisees, they don't like it. And they keep baying for blood. They keep baying for blood. They want a judgment on this woman who deserves death. Um, And so Jesus speaks to them and he stands up and he says, Hey, look, if you are guiltless, if you've never screwed someone over, If you've never used someone for your own benefit, if you are without sin, then you go for it. You throw the first first stone. And then he stops and he gets back down. And God starts writing with his finger in the dirt again. What is that about? Well, here's the thing, right? We've talked about this festival that's been going on in the background as this huge celebration of what happens in the wilderness and of God you know, leading the people and providing water and light and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they also celebrate, on the last day of the festival, they also celebrate the giving of the law. Um, and here's the thing about when God gave the law to the people of Israel. You might be aware that the story in Exodus goes a bit like this, that um, God took Moses up onto a mountain Um, and carved out two tablets of stone. And then we're told in the book of uh, Exodus that God wrote the law, God wrote the law on the tablets with his finger. That's what it's actually said. That's what it actually says. That God wrote the law on the tablets with his picture, with with his finger. Uh, So it says that in Exodus 31 verse 18. But some of you might also be aware of what happened as soon as Moses received the tablets and went, went to go back down the mountain. Remember what happened? When he's all got his little lunchbox and his briefcase with the tablets in them and he's going back down the mountain and he gets back down the mountain and what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? Israel is in the middle of idolatry. They've built a golden calf that represents another god, Baal, And they're like taking off their earrings and burning them down so that they can make another God to worship because they think the other gods abandoned them. And Moses gets so cranky, he takes the tablets and he throws them and they smash on the ground. And so on the back end of that story, Moses has to chisel out another another set of tablets. But we're told in Ezekiel, sorry, in Exodus 34.1, that once again, it's God who writes with his finger on the tablets and inscribes the law on the tablets. So just to be clear for those who are playing at home, when the Ten Commandments are given to Israel, God writes them with his finger. And then 
Israel has this massive adulterous, I'm sorry, I mean adulterous episode and God writes them with his finger again. So what happens when the Pharisees bring this woman and throw her at the feet of Jesus and say, you have to kill her now. That's what it says in the law. What does Jesus do? He gets his finger and he begins to write in the dirt. And then he challenges them. Are you guiltless? Have you kept the whole law? And he lets it hang in the air and he bends down and he writes again with his finger. Now for us, it's like this bizarre, like what the heck is happening passage. But for the religious leaders, the resonance is clear. They know exactly what's happening. Jesus is again claiming to be the one who gives the law and claiming to be the one, the only one, who has the authority to interpret. And so how do the, how do the Pharisees respond? How do these religious leaders respond? They leave. On this occasion, they give up the fight pretty quick. Whether there's some kind of uh, conviction that's happening for there, whatever is happening, the Pharisees leave. And they don't leave because Jesus has condoned adultery. Because he hasn't, actually. And they don't leave because the woman is guiltless, because she's not, actually. The reason they leave is because they're guilty as well. They're guilty as well. They're so quick to drag this woman from her bed or wherever and throw her at the feet of Jesus. They're so quick to condemn her. But the reality is they're guilty as well. So finally, it's just Jesus and this woman. I love I love how Jesus is like playing it really cool. So he's like, huh. He stands up and he's like, huh. Where'd they go? Where's, where's all the people that condemn you? Where, who's, who's condemning you now? And the woman says to him, no one, sir. There's no one, there's no one condemning me anymore. And Jesus says, well, I'm not condemning you. Because here's the thing, is there anyone that was there that day that was sinless, that was without guilt? Was there anyone that was there that day that had been perfectly faithful to the law of God, to who God is, that had the authority to condemn? Was there anyone? Well, yeah, actually. It was Jesus. But the one person who had the authority to condemn says very clearly, I Do not condemn you. He had the authority to judge, but he didn't. He showed grace. He removed shame. He protected a woman in an incredibly vulnerable situation, in the darkness of sin and shame and self-loathing and whatever was going on for her. In the midst of that, instead of heaping on the shame, he removed shame and he brought life and he brought light. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Whoever walks in darkness shall know the light of life. If anyone is thirsty... Come to me, says Jesus. 
and you will know the water of life. I'm the water of life. I'm the light of the world. This woman receives grace. And if we follow the story, what really happens is that Jesus takes her guilt and and all the judgment that they wanted to heap on her, they end up heaping it on Jesus. And Jesus takes all of that shame and all of that rage of the people accusing her and he takes it on himself. And he's going to go and he's going to die in her place. Ultimately, Jesus, Jesus is the one who will bear the condemnation and the rage of the Pharisees. He's going to bear the death penalty for this woman, this adulterer, for me. He's going to take that penalty. You know why? Because the Son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, to save us. We, um, we like to say at New City that... Uh, when we have a chat like this, we, we don't want to tell you what you have to do with it because it's actually up to you to apply this and to think about what does this mean for my life? What does this mean for me? But I want to share with you um, a couple of things that are glaringly obvious from this story for me. The first one is this. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves us. He just does. He loves us. No matter what we've done, no matter what we think we've done, no matter um, what other people are saying about us, no matter what other people's attitude are to us, no matter whether my adultery is physical and sexual or spiritual and religious Um, No matter whether uh, I've been unfaithful through the way that I've spoken about other people or through running away from God when I most needed him, no matter what I've done, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves us. I know that that gets said so much and it's such an awesome little children's song in Sunday school, but it's the most majestic truth. Jesus loves you. And you start loved. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go through any ritual. You start loved. That's the reality of you. Exactly as you are. You are loved by God. Who does not condemn you. And you know, sometimes people want to make a lot of Jesus parting words, go and sin no more, as if it's like a parting shot, you know, you got off easy this time, but don't keep doing it. I don't actually think that's what Jesus is saying. I think part of why we read it that way sometimes is because we've so committed ourselves to this rules-based understanding of who God is and what the law is that we've missed the fact that the definition of sin in the Bible is missing the mark. Like we're called to know life. We're called to have relationships that exhibit safety and refuge and joy. 
And we get so freaked out about whether people are going to love us or whether we belong or what I need to do to make sure that people love me that we become manipulative and exploitative and insecure and we push people away or we hold their head underwater. We just... Because we don't understand that we start loved. And so in all of these ways we sin by treating people differently to how they should be treated by treating creation differently to how it should be treated, by treating ourselves differently to how we deserve to be treated. We miss the mark. We misunderstand who God is and what we were created for. And so I don't think that when Jesus says to her, go and sin no more, I don't think he's giving her a massive backhander. I think he's saying, you were meant to live for more. You're meant to live for more. Don't keep doing this. Don't sell yourself short. There's more for you. I think the second implication of this story, so the first one is just the depth and magnitude of how much God loves us. And I think the second implication is just as huge. And for me, this is the big idea in this story. Representing Jesus, if we are going to be Jesus people, if we are going to live lives centered on Jesus, if we're going to claim to be Christians, representing Jesus does not mean throwing rocks at other people and denouncing their sin. What it actually means is lifting people from the dirt and removing their shame and proclaiming that they are loved and have reason to live. That's what representing Jesus means. When we talk about having Jesus as Savior and Lord, that's what it means. It's not chucking rocks at other people, telling them that they're crap. It's lifting people out of the dirt and telling them that they're loved. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means recognizing all the ways that I have sinned and missed the mark. And instead of letting that pile on my head of shame that tells me that I'm crap, looking up and seeing that Jesus removes that from me and makes me a conduit of grace. Because here's the thing about what Jesus says. He says that if we come to him for water, if we drink from him, we will find springs of living water within us. We will find the very presence of God within us. That's what he said to the last woman that was, you know, a bit questionable in John 4. And he never, ever condemned her either. He said, springs of living water will well up within you. You will satisfy the thirst of other people by loving them well. And proclaiming the love and the goodness and the grace of God. Because we are called to be, as Paul puts it in another place, ministers of reconciliation. We are meant to teach people to be friends of God. That's what that actually means. Because people were not made to keep the law. People were not made to keep the law. The law was made for us to give us a bit of a clue about what it looks like to love other people, to treat people with grace and truth. So if our interpretation of the law, our understanding of the rules means more to us than people, 
then we have misunderstood the law and we have lost sight of Jesus. Because representing Jesus, being Jesus' people, means dropping our rocks and emptying our hands so we can lift people to their feet and embrace them with the love and the grace of God. If we use our understanding of the law or our understanding of who Jesus is to shame people, to tell people that God is sickened by them, then we have misrepresented God. We have missed his glory. We have abused the word of God because the glory of God is shown most fully in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who lifts people from the dirt and removes their shame and proclaims that they are loved and meant for life. We're going to think about that a little bit more, I hope. And hopefully later on at the pub, we can chat about that a little bit more. But for now, I'm going to ask Lindsay to come up. And she's going to read something for us. When I was a teenager, people often told me I looked a few years older than I was. At 14, I passed for 16. At 16, I passed for 20. At 17, I got pregnant. And all of a sudden, I looked young again, too young. Oh, but she's so young, young. My adolescence had been interrupted by scandal. And the scandal had a sneaky way of drawing out the painful truth. It made grocery store checkers and bank tellers look twice, from my driver's license to my swollen belly and back to the year I was born. Seven months prior, they would have remarked about my maturity, maybe even made a pass at me. But now they remind me that I am so young, as if I hadn't noticed. Scandal made them shake their heads and mutter, what a shame, what a damn shame. I had eaten from the tree of knowledge, and now I was reaping the consequences. Baby-faced and burning with love for the child within, I carried a scarlet letter in the front of me like an overblown beach ball. My joy and my shame were right there for everyone to look at and talk about and touch without permission. It's not uncommon for complete strangers to say rude things to pregnant women. You're huge. Are you carrying twins? But the things that they say to unwed pregnant teens are downright assholy. Have you thought about adoption? Do you know who the father was? You know how those things get out, right? And don't get me started about the well-meaning Christians. The things that they said were awful and embarrassing for Jesus. Some people believe that they have the right, know the responsibility to decide who is broken and then to tell them loudly and often. They call it speaking the truth in love, but what they really mean is playing the gatekeeper to heaven. These are the people who believe that shame is the pathway to righteousness. They think shame is the thing that drives one towards obedience to God. These are the folks who, in your darkest moment, when you are the most fragile, will shove your face to the ground and demand that you repent or suffer the consequences. 
It was a Christian who told me that I deserved what I had gotten. I deserved to be stared at and embarrassed and judged, and I should be ashamed. Shame is from God, they said, and God was trying to get me to obey his rules by punishing me. I mean, I should consider myself lucky that he had waved the pregnancy wand and not the herpes wand. Lucky. They tried to use shame to draw me to Jesus, telling me that I was so young and so pregnant because I was a sinner. And then my sin baby slipped into the hard world, soaking wet and shamelessly naked, carrying the fresh scent of the new life and the very breath of God in him. A bastard, the good Christian would say, damn shame to such a young and tiny sinner. We had been cast out of Eden, mother and infant unworthy of a God who created us. So the Christians in their kindness dragged us before Jesus and threw us at his feet. Shame, they cried, shame on her. They shouted the truth in love with scorn on their faces and the stones in the clenched fists. Until Jesus knelt down and drew a line in the sand. And then he stood by my side. Jesus stands on the side of the broken, the outcast, the scandalous. scandalous. He sees us at the very core of our creation, naked and unshamed, meant to walk in the garden, now locked to humanity. He sees us hungry for knowledge and starved for love, eating from the first tree in the front of our faces, plucking the fruits of deceit and selfish ambition and snacking on lust, stuffing ourselves with greed and sucking away at vanity. And still he comes to us without condemnation, without shame. Shame is the byproduct of a dying world. It's a shackle that binds us to our brokenness. It is shame who points a finger and cries out, look at you, you're naked, and tells you to run and hide. Shame warns you to cover up, to hide your junk, don't get caught. Shame clothes us in fig leaves and nestles us in the bushes. Shame led the way right out of Eden, and it still barricades the door. If you believe shame is the pathway to obedience, I'm sorry, but your gospel is twisted. Shame is no friend of Jesus. Jesus knelt down and drew a line in the sand, and then he stood at my side, lifting my burden of shame. Jesus carried it off to the cross. When he returned, he was without it. He clothed me in grace and freedom and unleashed me to love with reckless abandon. Gratitude is my pathway to obedience through a soul filled with thanks for the God who redeems all things. I am grateful or I am nothing, for it is Jesus who stood me on my feet again. It is Jesus who tended my wounds. It is Jesus who lifted my chin and gently pushed back my hair to look upon my face, like a father to his child, whispering, I am here, and I'm taking back Eden. Welcome home.